welcome to episode 43 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics, with your host Peter Allegi and Peter Lim. And it's a very special episode uh, covering Africa's first ever World Cup of Soccer, and I'd like to uh, turn it back to my co-host Peter Allegi, who has been in South Africa uh, on a Fulbright and has covered the the Soccer World Cup from all possible angles. In addition, he's just published uh, an impressive new book, African Soccerscapes, How a Continent Changed the World's Game, Ohio University Press, 2010. And Peter has been interviewed on South African and French TV, on South African radio and the press, uh, to name just a few of the media. Um, So he's the person on the ground uh, to talk about these issues. Uh, He was also... Uh, accorded the honor of giving the 17th Alan Payton Memorial Lecture at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, Peter Maritzburg, uh, recently, and he spoke on soccer and human rights, Chief Fatuli, Alan Payton, Dennis Brutus, and the 2010 World Cup. Well, Peter, the World Cup, uh, it's over, or is it, perhaps? Well... The Vuvuzelas, those infernal plastic horns that South Africans have now become famous for, uh, seem to be still blowing here in South Africa. But yes, the World Cup is over. It was an incredible month of, of football and uh, culture, and the excitement here was palpable just about everywhere you turned. And uh, during the tournament, I met so many different people, and one of the folks that... Um, I thought would be interesting to speak to is uh, Dr. Chris Boltzmann, a lecturer in sociology at Aston University in the UK, and we had a very nice Skype interview uh, about the World Cup, a kind of wrap-up interview. So uh, Chris Boltzmann joins us today, and uh, his research interests are diverse. They focus uh, right now on football and identity particularly in post-apartheid South Africa, but he's also done some historical work, including some very original research on the first African team to tour uh, the United Kingdom. And that was a black team from South Africa in 1899 that included one of the early leaders of the uh, what became the African National Congress, Joseph Twai. So this tour happened in 1899, and Chris has written uh, a nice piece in the uh, forthcoming African Historical Review on this topic. Uh, he's uh, also published... Uh, in Soccer and Society, in the International Journal of the History of Sport, and his research interests include trade unions and internationalism, and some of the research has been published in the South African Labor Bulletin uh, and Historical Studies in Industrial Relations. Uh, Chris Boltzmann has also published uh, in um, the Journal of Higher Education in Africa and other journals on issues in higher education, particularly commercialization of higher education. And I've had the great pleasure of working with Chris on a new co-edited volume entitled South Africa and the Global Game, Football, Apartheid, and Beyond, which just came out with Routledge uh, in 2010. Welcome to the show, Chris. Great to be on the show, Peter. Well, 
June 11th, 2010, the day the first World Cup on African soil kicked off, has to stand as one of the most important dates in South African and maybe even recent African history. You were in the stadium at Soccer City that day, along with, what, about 80,000 or so people watching the opening ceremony and then South Africa play against Mexico. What was it like to be there? Yes, Peter, it was uh, a very significant day, and I would say uh, probably one of the most significant in South African uh, history. And in particular, if you look at the history of the uh, stadium, if we go back to early 1990, uh, the FNB stadium, as it was then called, was where... Nelson Mandela, uh, who had just been released from a prison, addressed a, a crowd in uh, Soweto. Six years later, of course, uh, it was also their host to the final of the African uh, Cup of Nations, where we beat uh, Tunisia and went on to become the African champions. But the 11th of uh, June, I think, was, uh, was more significant uh, in sporting terms because that was the opening of the first African uh, World Cup and in front of, uh, I think, just under 85,000 uh, spectators, South Africa uh, uh, recorded a credible draw against a very tough uh, opposition uh, uh, in the uh, Mexican team. As uh, as your listeners will know, we, uh, we took the lead uh, uh, in the second half and uh, there was a lot of hope and optimism in the, in the stadium. That, we that was a great moment, Chris. I mean, I remember watching it in at a friend's house uh, in Imbali Township uh, here in Peter Maritzburg and when Sipiwa Shawalala rocketed that ball in the top corner, there was dancing in the streets. Uh, what was it like inside the stadium? I think I had to wipe uh, some tears away and then uh, looked at... Uh, at friends and family around me in uh, utter disbelief because uh, we weren't sure that we were going to uh, actually score against the Mexicans. So we jumped up and down and I think we lost our voices. Uh, but uh, we, we quickly regained our composure and we, we uh, rooted for Bafana. And unfortunately, uh, uh, Marquez scored uh, uh, later on in the second half. But the, the goal was, uh, was fantastic. Sent the stadium into, into interruptions. It was incredible. It was almost uh, a sign of what the World Cup could have been because uh, from there, South Africa struggled in the next game against Uruguay, losing 3-0, and then did uh, have a credible game against uh, France, defeating the uh, former World Cup finalist uh, 2-1, but it just wasn't enough to make it to the second round. Now, before we get into the World Cup football in more detail, tell us a little bit about how you came to soccer while growing up in apartheid South Africa. Why was it so meaningful to you? I grew up in uh, in apartheid uh, Pretoria in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, I went to a whites-only primary school and a whites-only high school. And uh, in my whites-only uh, primary school, I learned to play football, and I really enjoyed the game. And when I went to high school, it was either a choice of choosing to play rugby or hockey or carrying on uh, with football. And I decided to carry on playing football, and through playing various club, uh, uh, in various club teams uh, across Pretoria. I got to meet uh, black kids who were playing for various white teams or playing in uh, black teams uh, in the Pretoria townships. And that's when I got to realize that football was more than just a game, a game in the South African context. That was a way where I could get uh, to, to meet black kids and interact with black kids and eventually play with black kids who then became my friends and, uh, and my equals. So, uh, Football in, in the South African context for me has always been a way of getting to meet uh, people uh, across uh, very strict uh, and rigid uh, uh, categories and lines uh, enforced by the apartheid regime. 
And what position did you play? I still try and play in the goals. Uh, I'm not particularly good, but uh, I try and vocally encourage my 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 backs and uh, my midfielders to keep the ball away from me and uh, and uh, try not to concede too many goals every weekend. Goalkeepers are very interesting individuals and, and role players in a team, uh, of course. And they sometimes have a reputation for being uh, the strangest character on the team. Do you buy that? Well, I don't know if I'm necessarily the strangest character on the team. I just know I can't play anywhere else on the football pitch and therefore I get stuck in, uh, in the world. <laughs> right. Well, the World Cup ended just a couple of days ago. Spain, of course, uh, won its first uh, world title here in South Africa. And uh, reading the newspapers and uh, blogs and internet sites, uh, it's clear that international media, as well as South African media, are unanimously calling this World Cup a triumph. Now, of course, uh, several years ago, there were plenty of naysayers. Perhaps the most famous one that comes to mind is uh, the German footballer and uh, coach Franz Beckenbauer, who said, and I quote in 2006, the organization for the World Cup in South Africa is weighed down by big problems. And these are not South African problems. These are African problems. People are working against each other, end quote. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, was it a triumph? Uh, what happened to the naysayers like uh, Beckenbauer? I, I think uh, people like uh, Franz Beckenbauer and uh, uh, British journalists in uh, particular have had to eat a lot of humble pie because uh, this has been an absolutely fantastic uh, World Cup, uh, having attended uh, a few games, having gone to various uh, fan fests uh, and interacted with the foreign uh, foreign football fans and South African uh, football fans, everyone that I speak to uh, has a positive thing to say about this World Cup, whether it comes to the way people greet you at the entrance to a stadium, to the way people serve you a refreshment, to the way somebody sits next to you and strikes up a conversation. It's been an absolute uh, joy to be part of and uh, of, uh, of, of the various experiences I've had as a South African, whether it was voting for the first time in 1994 or attending the final of the 96 African Cup of Nations, this this experience uh, ranks as the most significant for me. Uh, I think what it has shown is that uh, is that South Africans and Africans more generally can host uh, a World Cup, can host any event uh, with the with the uh, correct uh, uh, funding and of course with the correct uh, infrastructure in place and the political will. And uh, and I think what this has shown is that South African government had or has the political will to be able to pull off uh, events uh, uh, such as the World Cup. Yes, and, and I would agree with you by and large. I think the South Africans uh, did really a terrific job, not a flawless one, uh, but, a, but a very, very good job. And I was lucky enough to go to two previous World Cups in the early 1990s in, in Italy and the United States. And uh, the vibe at the South African one was as good, if not better, and in terms of organization was, was certainly on par. Now, uh, having said that, it seems to me that going to the games and entering this uh, alternate reality uh, that some people call FIFA land, you know, this kind of football circus in and around the stadiums and the fan parks, uh, there was uh, very little that was uh, African about it. And so I want to ask you, in your opinion, in your experience, was this FIFA's World Cup or South Africa's World Cup? I think, uh, on reflection, this was a, a case of, of, of a FIFA World Cup, which uh, 
which is then repeated every four years. I think uh, the experience in the stadiums is probably very similar to what uh, what it was like in 2006 in Germany and what it will be like in 2014. And as I've uh, argued elsewhere, I've said that um, this World Cup, uh, the sense to me was it was a Disney-fied uh, experience, where, which was very sanitized in the sense that uh, uh, the areas immediately on on the outskirts of stadiums had been cleared of uh, traditional vendors, and there had been there were these fences put up where one had to go through uh, security checks and uh, and so on, and one got into a space uh, into into a football ground which uh, could be anywhere in the world. And I think this was also reinforced by the fact that um, even in the South African games where one would expect significant South African support, uh, one didn't notice the traditional South African football fans. Now, when I refer to traditional South African football fans, I'm referring to black South Africans. And uh, what struck me were the number of of white South Africans uh, and other minority groups uh, in South Africa who were in the stadiums um, who may not necessarily be uh, traditional uh, football fans. And that... uh, reinforce the sense of uh, inclusion and exclusion. In other words, uh, those who could afford uh, to buy tickets, even if they were um, priced relatively uh, cheaply, although that uh, is very contentious, of course, in the South African context, I got the sense that uh, a number of South Africans who would uh, dearly have loved to have been in the stadiums were, were excluded. In one of our conversations before this interview, Chris, you mentioned uh, that uh, a friend of yours works with the Clothing and Textile Workers Union and uh, noted that uh, the current wage is about 14 rand, less than $2 per hour for the union members in the clothing and textile sector in South Africa. And the cheapest tickets available to South Africans were a special Category 4 ticket that cost 140 rand, so roughly 10 hours of wage labor for these workers who were incidentally making two-thirds of the Adidas uh, South African national team jerseys that were retailing for 650 or so rand in the stores. Uh, so again, you know, a very practical example of the kind of uh, inclusion and exclusion that was taking place uh, at this World Cup. And and your comments also remind me of the fact that there were very few Africans uh, from outside of South Africa at the games that I saw. I think the number was about 36,000 tickets sold to Africans from outside South Africa. Uh, what about the Pan-Africanism at the World Cup? Any thoughts on it? Well, I think when we talk of Pan-Africanism in terms of the, the World Cup, I think we need to go back to the bid books, and, and, and quite a bid was made in the 2006 and 2010 uh, bid books about uh, uh, the, the Pan-Africanism, or the element of Pan-Africanism in the, uh, in the South African bid. And I think uh, if one looks at uh, what the media has made of this Pan-African uh, uh, world or this pan-African moment in in terms of the World Cup, the media, the um, the media and multinational corporations, I think, have jumped on a bandwagon. So if you if you look at OR Tambo International Airport in Johannesburg, um, MTN, one of the South African sponsors uh, of the World Cup, uh, has enormous posters referring to Africa United, um, and uh, you have uh, various references to an African World Cup. Although, if you look again in the stadiums, uh, I don't think there were many Africans, in, at least at the games that I attended. Although, what one did notice is that when uh, the game uh, Ghana-Uruguay, for example, the, uh, the quarterfinal, there, were, there was significant support for uh, Ghana um, 
from uh, South Africans in particular, or when uh, the Ivory Coast played against North Korea in Nelspruit uh, in the Mombela um, Stadium, there was significant support for uh, for the Ivory Coast. So I think South Africans who did uh, attend games uh, embraced. Uh, um, African African uh, countries playing in uh, in the World Cup. Although, I, as as I have said, I do think the Pan Africanism was was possibly uh, a lot of uh, rhetoric rather than any real uh, substance. Because I'm not convinced that uh, neighbouring states uh, uh, of of South Africa have really benefited from this World Cup, let alone uh, communities in South Africa who uh, were expected to 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 benefit from from the first African, the first South African World Cup. Yeah, those are very, very good points. Uh, how widely have the supposed benefits of this tournament been distributed, particularly outside of South Africa, is, is, is a really, really interesting point. Uh, although it is true that within South Africa, the media uh, did dub the Black Stars of Ghana as Bagana Bagana ahead of the Uruguay match. And uh, had uh, John converted his penalty in the 120th minute, um, who knows? Maybe that uh, Pan-African frenzy would, would have reached uh, an even higher pitch in the semifinals. Which brings up the issue of the African team's performances. Um, see, I've noted that a lot of commentators locally have been disappointed with the performance of African teams. Uh, of course, everyone would have liked to have seen uh, more than one African side in the round of 16. Uh, but uh, is that uh, really a, a realistic hope that people had, or were we getting too caught up in the excitement of the moment? Well, I think I think going back to 2004, 15th of May 2004, when we were awarded the 2010 World Cup, I uh, told family and friends that I had no doubt that we would host a, a fantastic uh, World Cup, and my concern was always that the national team was not going to to be strong enough to to compete. And uh, if we go back to the highs of the mid 1990s, uh, South Africa's uh, national team, Bafana Bafana, has uh, continuously plummeted down the FIFA World uh, Rankings, and uh, we have these incredible incredible stadiums that have been have been built have been built, but. My sense is that not much has been done in terms of grassroots development of the uh, of the South African game, and that for me is a great, great concern considering the upcoming, uh, upcoming qualifications for the for the next African uh, uh, Cup of Nations and indeed the next World Cup in four years' time. That's an excellent point, and one that I believe applies to countries outside of South Africa as well. Most of the revenues that have been coming into the African game have been uh, directed at the elite level, and uh, virtually nothing has been invested in infrastructure, in coaching training, and player development at the youth level and in the schools and also on equipment and as a result there's this growing divide between the elite game and the grassroots game in South Africa and also elsewhere on the continent uh, so you know I think that's really important to point out if we hope that African teams will perform uh, better uh, in the future and you know for, on, from where I sit I think the African performances were a little better than what maybe most people credit them for after all Nigeria came within one goal of qualifying and if you think of that incredible miss that Yakubu had against South Korea um, right in front of an open goal managed to miss and also that Ivory Coast was eliminated on goal difference uh, against Portugal, uh, I think, you know, that the African sides did, did reasonably well. But uh, 
let's talk just uh, about the political and economic impact of the World Cup on South Africa. FIFA took three and a half billion dollars roughly uh, home to Switzerland. South Africa, the local organizing committee, uh, had about 70 to 100 million dollars US from ticket sales. Um, what do you think the, the economic impact of the tournament uh, was? Well, my sense when I was not watching, uh, not watching live football or watching uh, the television uh, 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 broadcasts of the games, I was uh, in various bits of, uh, of of Johannesburg, and what I did get the sense was that uh, the the foreign tourists seemed to be clustered around the uh, the shopping malls of the northern suburbs uh, of uh, of Johannesburg, so Sant and, and Rosebank in particular, um, and they seemed to be uh, spending lots of money. But my concern is that. Um, that money uh, would go into coffers of uh, a South African elite and indeed go into coffers of uh, multinational corporations. If you traveled uh, to Soweto, for example, Vilakazi Street, which is a famous uh, tourist uh, destination in, in uh, Soweto, that was also full of, uh, of uh, foreign tourists. But I think uh, areas uh, which may have or, or possibly expected uh, some input from uh, uh, foreign tourists in terms of purchases of, of, of crafts or, or goods that they were selling, I think were possibly very uh, disappointed. So the financial benefits for uh, South Africa, I think, are possibly skewed again towards what I've already said in terms of uh, those who are included in this elite uh, spectacle and those uh, who unfortunately have been excluded. And again, they've been excluded uh, financially. As an outsider living in South Africa, I've been struck by these football Fridays that started uh, just about when we arrived in January of 2010, when South Africans uh, took to wearing football jerseys, and then around March they became the national team jerseys. Um, this seemed to really take on a life of its own, and then people started flying flags on their cars and putting uh, flag sock mirrors on their cars. And it seemed to me that for uh, about a month, a month and a half maybe, there was real patriotic fervor in South Africa that cut across racial, ethnic, economic, gender lines, uh, and even generational lines. Uh, did you see it that way? And do you see this as, as a, a phenomenon that might be lasting beyond um, uh, 2010? I think this was an incredible uh, experience as, as a South African who is now living abroad, coming home to, uh, to a South Africa where literally every second person was wearing a yellow uh, South African jersey and flying a flag uh, on their car, on their bicycle, their motorbike. And that was something that, uh, that I think was very, very special. I think we've got to be cautious of this, of this notion of a, of a patriotism because remember in the context of South Africa where only two years ago we had uh, very vicious xenophobic attacks where, where over 60 people were murdered. I think we need to be a little cautious though of uh, this patriotism and what does, it, uh, what does it really mean because many commentators have made much of this idea of the rainbow nation and uh, the nation building uh, exercise that something like a World Cup is able to generate. I think we need to go back and look at some of the more deeper fundamental structural inequalities within South African society. And uh, until we address those inequalities, I, I think we're going to have these existing um, and ongoing problems. And uh, as much as uh, it's wonderful to be patriotic and supportive of a, of a football team, I think we need, to, we need to seriously ask ourselves as South Africans, uh, how can we live the kinds of lifestyles we live when, um, when our fellow when our fellow citizens are living in, in abject poverty and uh, struggle to, 
to survive uh, from day to day. So I'm a bit cautious uh, when it comes to this patriotism that has been generated, and, and I'm not so convinced that uh, it will have long-term benefits. I think I think uh, South Africans have been brought together, um, but I'm afraid only mom- momentarily. Well, at the very least, uh, they've been able to imagine an alternative uh, South Africa, one in which you can hope to bring people together and, and overcome uh, some of the huge, huge challenges uh, that this country faces. And, and I think it's interesting that, once again, it's football, uh, perhaps more so than, than rugby and cricket and other sports, that, that has really uh, generated this kind of momentum. Now, I absolutely agree with you, uh, in, in that sense, uh, quite a bit has always been made about the 1995 uh, Rugby World Cup. But I think if we look at uh, the 1995 Rugby World Cup with a with a critical lens, I think we must uh, remember that in the in the stadiums uh, during the 95 Rugby World Cup, there were very very few, if any, uh, uh, black South Africans. Of course, there were no. Uh, uh, there, there were very few black South Africans playing in the actual uh, rugby the rugby team. So I think what this has shown um, South Africans who possibly were not particularly keen on uh, football is that football is truly the South African game, is truly South Africa's number one game, and uh, is indeed the world's game, the global game. And I think as uh, as citizens, we can we can rightly take our place then as members of this uh, of, of 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 this global citizenry, if you like. Well, Chris, you, I think, said it extremely, extremely well. It's probably a good note uh, to end on. Chris Boltzmann, sociologist and co-author with me of a, an edited collection entitled South Africa and the Global Game, Football, Apartheid and Beyond, uh, published by Routledge this year in 2010. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, my friend. Thanks very much, Peter. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.